Welcome to episode 11 of the Digital Guardian podcast. My name is Will Gravgido, and joining me today are Mr. Thomas Fisher and Mr. Tim Bandos. Guys, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourselves? Yeah, thanks, Will. Good to be back. It's been a hectic few weeks with Security Summer Camp just passed off, and I'm happy to welcome our guest today. Yep, thanks, Will. It's Tim Bandos, and I concur with Thomas. It's, it's nice, actually, getting back after DEF CON, Black Hat, and getting settled back in. So let's kick this off. Excellent. And joining us today is Mr. Davi Ottenheimer. Davi is the head of product security at MongoDB. In addition to that role, Davi has held many roles in both corporate, private consulting, and advisory positions. And Davi, we're really pleased to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So Davi, would you mind telling us a little bit about what you're up to today and kind of where your where your career is taking, taking you thus far? We're really interested in understanding what you're doing with regards to product security and then also some of your prior work, specifically speaking with regard to security frameworks, security strategy, working with CISOs and some of the world's largest technology corporations to bring together a composite vision. They're all very fascinating stuff. Yeah, sure. I, I like to frame it in terms of the CIA triad, the confidentiality, integrity, and availability, because I feel like the first portion of, of my career was focused on availability, which still is a very interesting and exciting space. But for the most part, it's been solved beyond our wildest dreams. And moving into confidentiality, same thing. We moved through some really cool and exciting technologies that are now coming to fruition. So encryption has become very mainstream. And that's kind of left us with integrity. So the focus I feel lately has been on fixing some of the integrity issues, which are getting harder, not easier. And we're moving further away from the goal, it feels like right now, as we move into machine learning and, and AI, fairly unprepared for what's ahead. Interesting. Guys on the call, on the podcast, Tim and, and Thomas, what do, you, what do you think about what Davi just said? I actually have a question, Davi. Do you really think we've solved availability? Because when I look at some companies nowadays, they're still struggling with some of the basics, like you know, backups and and ensuring. Well, um, it falls kind of falls under integrity, but ensuring that the that their data is, remains available in cases cases of incidents. I mean, you know, we've been talking a lot about the past few months about ransomware type situations, and ransomware can be solved to a certain extent. You know, can can be resolved by if you have a proper availability program in place. And then I'm talking about things like backup and you know, main, ensuring that your data has some kind of fail safes and checkpoints in place where you can where you have the ability to recover from a disaster. For me, that's the availability part. I don't see availability as being completely solved. That's a great point. So let me clarify. You're right. We have a lot of people who aren't doing what we could be doing. But the fact is that we have controls that are amazing. I mean, we can move entire data centers 200 kilometers without anybody noticing. And we can survive disasters at massive scale because we know how to build the controls. We've, we've spent the time, the market pays for it, because there's real money attached to availability. So a lot of people have made the choice, or whether they realize it or not, have decided to not pay for a level of availability that is possible. So we do have systems that can be run at 100%. It's not even five nines anymore. So it's just a question of whether people want to pay for that. And we can do it at all kinds of scale, small, large, mm-hmm. massive. It's different when we get into confidentiality because we can do a lot of it, but there are areas where we just simply can't use encryption yet because we, we haven't built it and we don't know how. It's much more difficult. And so the largest organizations with the most money are standing there saying, take my money. And no one's stepped up. 
Yeah, but in the encryption space, what do you think of some of these rants that have been going on from from politicians? I mean, like the Australian Prime Minister who said, you know, Australian law was above was above math, and and for us in the UK, Amber Rudd is like going on her high horse about how they need to, how companies need to introduce backdoors into encryption so that we can so that governments can kind of get around it to protect the citizen. It seems kind of counterproductive, considering government, most governments rely on encryption extensively. What's your thought process on that? I mean, how are we going to resolve that in the long Well, not resolve, but how are we going to handle that? What do you think will happen? Well, I think that the, the issue is that we're making a leap from technology into social science. And there are very few people who are equipped to work in both. My background actually was in social science. And I know a lot of people did too before they got into technology. And so what's happening is the arguments being made from these politicians are sort of based in economics. They're based in a cost model where they kind of want to cheat. When they think of backdoor, they think of an easy way that costs as little as possible for them to get what they want as quickly as possible. And then, of course, people who oppose it are thinking about the cost to their privacy. And so if we frame it in terms of knowledge versus privacy, I think it gives us a better social science model. For example, you wouldn't want to deny people knowledge that would solve cancer. You wouldn't want to deny people knowledge that would stop a major event. Most people would agree with that. But then you also don't want to remove privacy. So these are issues that have been dealt with for hundreds of years, if not longer, thousands, if you talk about philosophy. And so I think the struggle is people who are taking one side, like knowledge is good, are really pushing hard for that without really accommodating what the other side thinks, that you know, privacy is very important. And if you destroy it, you've lost the whole point. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so Davi, I guess then to your current interest, as we talk about integrity, I mean, what are your thoughts around solving that particular issue? What are you working on? And, and I mean, what, what do you like to see the industry do as it relates to integrity? Well, a perfect example of this is we're seeing a lot of news lately about road signs being misinterpreted. And this is a talk I gave extensively last year about, you know, cars can basically be put on the road without even the basic capabilities of humans. We frame them as artificial intelligence being better, but actually they're far, far worse. In other words, we can feed them a hundred years of data comparable to what a human would see. And it sounds impressive, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be better than a human. In fact, they need so much more learning that just to achieve the basics of humans, it's kind of a, a marketing game for people to say, our cars have been on the road this much. But what I'm trying to say is basically, you can't be on the road if you don't pass an eye chart. If you can't see a sign and read it, you can't be on the road if you can't know what the signs mean. In fact, when you take a driver's test, you're asked, what's the maximum speed ever in your state? And in California, you'd have to say, well, it's 70 miles an hour. It's never more than 70 miles an hour. I know that. So they let you drive. Yet you can put a car on the road from a company and they've spent a ton of money and they talk all about how many billions of miles that they've read from all the different drivers or all the different cars that they're monitoring all the time. And they still don't know what the maximum speed is. Like they will read a sign as 105 miles an hour when it says Highway 101. This is a documented case that was on uh, Twitter recently. Now that doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons. One, it doesn't interpret the sign properly. That's a failure. Two, it reads 101 as 105. That's a massive failure. Three, it doesn't know better than to cap all speed limits at 70. That's pretty simple. So these are all massive integrity failures that are actually the easy ones to fix. It's so easy to write logic into a, a card that says, if you're in the state of California, never read large, uh, faster than 70. So we're not even at the basics before we talk about the really hard integrity problems that we have to solve. And what you're describing there, is it because the system's relying on 
one subsystem only to determine that speed. Because I can think of like, if I use my TomTom application, it actually, based on the road that I'm on and based on the location I'm on, it can actually show me what the, the maximum speed limit is or what the supposed speed limit for that road is. So in that situation that you were describing, I mean, that's isn't that a failure of just relying on one system to determine one point? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's part of the talk I gave last year was there are a lot of ways that you could pull certainty for integrity or data from multiple systems. I mean, going back to availability, we, we know this from RAID. The whole point was if you have a data loss or a mistake or an error in one, you can pull from the other systems, right? You know, so RAID 5 is going to give you a certain amount of availability because you're pulling from multiple disks and you've got a parity bit and so forth. It's it's such simple logic that fixes this. It's amazing that Tesla is even allowed on the road. Yeah, because wasn't there just a, a recent report or there was a study done out of the University of Washington where they discovered that you know the autonomous driving systems can easily be fooled by just a, a simple sticker right on a stop sign. Yeah, I don't know if you had a chance to see that, but I mean, is that really what you're referring to too? Is it just how AI interprets, I guess, what is it seeing on the road? That's right. I mean, that's literally the talk I gave last year when I was at KiwiCon. I, I gave an yeah. example of a stop sign being fooled or rather a car being fooled into thinking there's a stop sign where there wasn't. So it's cool that other researchers are following along and, and proving out the points I'm making in these talks. But I mean, I can make even stronger points. A lot of the research I do on integrity, of course, is behind the scenes. We can't just publish because we're working with people on fixing it. But another example is we were able to make a Tesla drive off the road. Potentially, we could make it crash by fooling it. And so we're sort of concerned that it's to make a bigger picture, it's not just about one company being negligent. It's, it's also about the industry as a whole not having the controls yet. So again, if I wanted to say, if you asked me about availability, I could, you know, having worked at EMC, I, I tried to solve every problem everywhere in the world that I could. We had massive solutions for every size or scale of problem and availability. If we want to talk about confidentiality, we certainly had a lot of solutions and we we're working on making them better. But when we got to these integrity issues, it was like a dance with a lot of the companies to see if they even cared enough to make that kind of solution available. I mean, they're not rushing out and saying, hey, help us solve this. They ask the people who report it, and some people are trying to make that. It basically leads to stunt hacking is the issue. Because in order to impress them enough and get enough attention, you have to have some people do some radical things or get a lot of press before people say, hey, wouldn't there be a, a good way to fix this? That's not the case typically with availability because you have an outage and people know, wow, we're down. Or with confidentiality, they get really upset because they know that someone has their data and that turns. But with integrity, it's a much harder problem to solve, we find, because it's not so obvious that somebody won the election through cheating, or it's not so obvious whether you're being lied to. It's like almost like you have to wait for historians 50 years later to tell you whether or not someone was lying to you. Well, in artificial intelligence, it's not as yeah, in artificial intelligence, everything's sped up massively. So it's like turning on a machine gun and mowing down tens of thousands of people like the British did in Sudan when they first invented the machine gun. And then people say, wait a minute, this automation speeds up harm so much, we're going to have to change tactics completely. And that's where we're at with integrity is trying to find solutions at scale, at speed for massive failures of our ability to protect ourselves from lies. And I have tons of examples in this space of how people were basically shifted, entire economies were shifted based on someone telling them something that wasn't true. And then scientists spending years trying to prove that, you know, what truth was. This is all going to get worse if we don't have any controls on our data systems. In that example, you're giving, you know, a very large timeline, but 
in the previous examples where you talk about the incidents with the, with the automated cars, it was a much more reduced timeline, which brings to mind one thing. It's like a week too much of a reactive industry. Because if you think, if you think about what we seem to be focused on, you know, what's, what's gone wrong and how do we fix it instead of actually thinking about how can we build better systems and how can we build more secure systems in that same term, right? I mean, it's, we always, we always seem to be reacting to some form of, some form of explosion, quote unquote, because some, some researcher found something that did this to the car or did this to the system. And then we react only afterwards. I mean, you know, even in, when we talk about, you know, data loss, it's the same thing. It's like companies, tend to sit there and go, oh, well, I don't really need to put this into place yet because I'm, I'm not, I don't risk much or I'm not ready to, to, I don't have the budget to do this. And then they get, then something happens to them and they start to think, oh, maybe I should have done this or maybe I, sh- I need to put this into place. I mean, it, for me, I'm, I keep, we keep running into this. It's like we're reacting instead of being proactive. What are you thoughts well, on that? So the philosopher in me wants to say we'll only be reactive because it's impossible to predict with 100% accuracy. So at some point, you're going to have that percentage that you didn't anticipate because it's, Hume used to talk about this a lot, that if you try to be more proactive, there's a point at which you become paralyzed because you aren't proactive and you can't react. So <laughs> what do you do? Because now you have a situation you haven't anticipated. And so in economics, which is probably a better model because people hate philosophy, but in economics, it's more the case of you find with regulators, they don't want to be so proactive that they shut down innovation, shut down business. But I think the real risk here is that by giving too much leeway in order for people to be innovative and to be free to innovate, you have people who cheat or who abuse the system. And that's what we're seeing today is people who play dumb essentially and say, well, there's no way I could have known that that speed limit would have been you know, below 70 miles an hour or it wasn't 105. And, and that's that's where we start to get regulators involved and say, okay, there is a baseline, a checklist. Like the pilot who flies the plane uses a checklist because they don't want to crash. So the risk is high enough that they're willing to follow a specific set of lists that are very clear that if you don't do them, you and everyone else will die. That's how I think we should be proactive versus reactive. I used to give talks on this about how people could be trained on checklists, helicopters as an example. Like in order to fly the helicopter, you really have to be trained on things that will happen that are known to happen. But at the same time, you're going to be up there and maybe let's say you're going to be firing a missile. So it's very reactive and it requires a lot of analysis. You can't possibly have the sort of checklists that would account for everything. I mean, you still do. You still don't want to shoot people who aren't deserving of that missile. So there's war crimes and there's other regulations. But it's this is the whole concept of political philosophy and economics determining where risk decisions should be made. And I find that I just saw recently, for example, they want to push a whole bunch of driverless cars on the road to try to spur innovation. And what we found historically is that we'll have the opposite effect by pushing them too early. You'll cause a lot of damage. And then there will be a backlash of people saying, why did you push so many dumb, unprepared, dangerous devices into a world where you knew there would be harm? And then people want to shut the whole thing down. Very interesting stuff. You know, when you start to talk about the the moral and ethical obligations and responsibilities of introducing new technology and compensating controls to those technology platforms in order to ideally serve the greater good and and prevent catastrophe. Davi, what are you seeing with regards to overall valuation and adoption 
and promotion of, of broad security strategy within the technology space. Uh, you've done a lot of work in the past. Obviously, that's how you and I met whilst we were both at EMC. I was on the, on the uh, NetWitness side through RSA and you, of course, at EMC proper. You worked with the CISOs for EMC and for VMware and for RSA. Done a lot with regards to strat- strategy. What, what are your thoughts on broader ad- adaptation and adoption of, of proper formal security strategy. Is that happening on a global basis from your perspective? Are we still seeing, are we still operating at a deficit with regards to strategy? Is our response, even in our preparation, mostly visceral as opposed to a long game? Well, I've, what, I've what seen the industry change a lot over the years. So I've been doing it for over 20 years and it really was a different game when I started. We had to play bad cop, good cop. We had to come in and, and do all kinds of social engineering tricks to try to get people to take even the basics of security seriously. There was a lot of pushback from people who really favored the innovation side so much that they were willing to take risks and externalize those on customers. So since 2003, I think we've seen a sea change once breach laws became more common. That was a major, major factor. Since 2005, I think PCI DSS, I, people like to bag on it, but it fundamentally changed the economics because we no longer had to play bad guy. We could say the regulators are forcing this. And a lot of regulations have more teeth now because PCI kind of led the way there. So education has changed and it's, I feel like, a much easier space to be in. We're moving the dial further. It feels hard, but we've already made a lot of ground. It's behind us. And I think a lot of people don't perceive that because they weren't there for those battles. So they don't see how hard it was, but it does look hard going forward. What was interesting to me at EMC, RSA, VMware, and Pivotal was I was spanning security across all types of technology. So EMCII or information infrastructure was traditional MIS, literally mainframe type stuff, storage, backups, and so forth. And then with RSA and VMware, it was a client server world, which was much more about even mid-range systems, which was much more about, you know, power shift to the endpoint. And then Pivotal, of course, was pure cloud. So we had to come up with security strategy and training for all the CSOs across all possible customers across every possible country. And in order to stay on top of that, it was very challenging because we found significant differences, for example, in how people perceive privacy. Back to my point about would you value knowledge over privacy? Would you value privacy over knowledge? Some countries, the people vastly favored privacy for themselves versus the group. Or maybe a better way of saying that is People would give up privacy in Sweden, for example, or the United States, if they would get something personally. Give them a chocolate bar, or you give them some personal reward system, they would be happy to give up their privacy to get that reward. But in other countries like China and India, we found that did not exist. You couldn't just say to somebody, I'm going to give you something. They would say, how does it map to everyone's benefit? So you'd say, well, I'm going to cure cancer if you give me your privacy. Then they'd say, sure, if everyone's going to benefit from this, then it's worth me sacrificing my own privacy. So it was hard across all technology types, you know, cloud's very different from mainframe, even though really it's kind of almost like a horseshoe. They're coming back around towards each other. They're still very different. And in terms of, you know, different cultures and different perceptions, it was definitely interesting. Another example is, you know, I was, I'm actually, I hate to say it because it's controversial, but I am in favor of backdoors because I look at it as a way to get knowledge. And of course, when you're in security, you're always trying to get knowledge. So I think the backdoor situation has been misplayed. I, I really do think we could call them emergency exits and, and something like that, where there's a case to be made for having them in buildings for emergencies, and we can build them in a way they can't be abused. So that's more of the discussion I like to have. But in a lot of different types of technology and cultures, it was hard to have that consistently because everyone has different terms. In Japan, for example, I couldn't say 
you're going to be attacked by people, but I could say there might be an imposter. They didn't believe that in their culture, they didn't believe as much that people would turn on you, but they would believe that an imposter would be inside the organization pretending to be someone. They had an honor code, a norm, an honor code that protected them that you wouldn't find in other countries. So education varies very much by technology, by culture, by sociology. So. Fascinating stuff. You know, I think that it's really important to kind of touch on the cultural aspects of things when you're talking about organizations' interpretation and adoption of things like security strategy. You know, obviously, we we spend a lot of time talking about data protection as well as threat mitigation and threat discovery, detection and response. And I think culturally, that's interesting to note that in a geography such as Japan, there might be a different perception with respect to an adversary versus an imposter or an insider threat. That's kind of an interesting, interesting thing to noodle on for a bit. What do you think with respect to businesses, right, and and vendors on the whole, especially in the security industry today? Do you think we're start, we're seeing more sound thinking and and applied knowledge and wisdom with regards to security strategy as it's relating to the development of security offerings, whether they're services or products, or do you still think that we're seeing more of a visceral bent toward, you know, applying a stopgap versus a long-term strategic mitigation and compensating control? Well, that's hard to to say. I, I think the, the right answer is that we don't measure it very well. So it's really, that's why it's so hard to say precisely what's happening in our industry. But I think if we, just from sort of my qualitative experience rather than quantitative, I would I would point to large, large enterprise systems. You know, the biggest, biggest customers are spending a lot of money on better solutions and they're bringing the cost down dramatically. I mean, you think about Amazon building its cloud. It was fundamentally to improve its own business and then it offered that to other people. It's ironic in a way that, you know, a Sears or a JCPenney didn't do the same, but instead outsourced their technology to IBM and said, we're going to focus on our core business. We're not going to be technology companies. By Amazon being a technology company, it now offers it to everyone else. And it kind of, you know, begs the question, should people break the mold or should they, you know, jump out of the box when people are saying, here's the right way to do things and you should be following along. You know, Amazon can do it better than you can. Just trust them. But ultimately, no one wants to jump into IBM anymore because they aren't as competitive as Amazon is. So real hard to say that, like I say, that we have the numbers to show which way people are going. But if I take a step back and say what's been my experience, people overall are getting better technology with better controls and we can move faster. So I can, like I said, I can offer you availability and it's not that expensive. I can offer you, obviously, uh, privacy, much less cost than ever. You know, we have way better infrastructure and tools. It's just when we start to talk about integrity that I start to say, wait a minute, we're going to have to build some stuff. And the most likely customers for that right now are the ones who have the deepest pockets because it's going to take us a while to really get to where we need to go. And I keep pushing it, honestly, to help the market because I want people to recognize that we need more people and there is money here to be made if you get into the integrity side of things. But let me give you an example. I like to use history a lot, but 1905 Grover Fire comes to mind. You know, that that was a company that was doing all the wrong things. Well, they'd done some of the right things. They put a new boiler in place because their old boiler was known to be flawed. And when they put the new boiler in place, they knew that they needed to fix the old one because it had risks. But what they didn't anticipate was that the old one would catch on fire, explode and burn two city blocks down and killing everybody inside. So we're really looking for people who are doing the wrong thing at that level. We don't want massive breaches with loss of life and disasters, but most people are doing the right thing and buying the new technology and putting it in place. We just want them to move faster and we want to measure when 
things are going bad. And, and that fire fundamentally changed how engineering was done in the United States. And, and back to the point about culture and society, although everything is different and relative, we do know that the United States has, in the past, it may be changing, but the United States has traditionally been the place, a source of knowledge. So like NIST standards, for example, are used all over the world. People look to those as guidance. So we can see how people are moving, in theory, along a moral scope and say, you're behind, you're not doing the things you need to do. You see some people saying this about healthcare now with medical devices, IoT. I say it about cars all the time. So those are the people we want to look out for that are verging into negligence. Carrying on in that sense of changing, what do you see as the, the probably disruptive technology or the disruptive disruptive security solution that's going to change the way that CISOs and, and uh, you know, our community see security or, or moves from a, moves into a new, a new kind of security st- uh, Well, I posture. think it's clearly around this knowledge, and that's the irony of our lacking integrity controls. Everybody who's advertising machine learning or, adv- or artificial intelligence, what they're really saying is we can speed up your ability to know what's going on. And they're hoping that just by, you know, throwing in some magic sauce everything will get better. But that's not how it works, unfortunately. But I do think that what's going to change it, change the game. Well, if I would, I I basically break it down into three periods of time. We had a collection phase, which was, you know, I used to work at ArcSight and work with a lot of SIM vendors and built a lot of those tools that were collecting information faster. And in that sense, back then we had an integrity issue that was, we didn't get all the logs. And when we did get all the logs, we weren't sure they were complete or robust or safe, you know, protecting the uh, chain of evidence and so forth. So we solved that, but it's a very simplistic solution because we really just collected everything into one repository. And the next question was, well, what can you do with it? And so we had analysis phase. The analysis phase or period of time, if you will, really moved quickly to where people were starting to do forensics better. They were doing reversing, malware analysis, depacking things. So trying to get to better integrity or understanding of what was going on in systems. But that's still, I think that's kind of where we're stuck, honestly is doing analysis over massive volumes of data to try to get a sense of what's next. That's a very reactive situation, as we were talking about before. So the next one really becomes in being real-time. To know immediately the decision to make, because you have all of the prior knowledge. In other words, if you built a library, read it, went to school or college, been taught to do analysis, and now are out in the real world making decisions in real-time, that's where we need to get to. And the technology that will enable that is going to be based on machine learning because it will speed up the, the two phases prior to it. Very interesting stuff. Hey, guys, we're getting coming up to uh, the five-minute mark for closing remarks and kind of tying things together. We've talked about a lot of really interesting things, right? We've talked about our ability to, to deal with the introduction of diverse technology platforms, which may or may not be properly secured or, or enabled with compensating controls or enough intelligence in, in, in reference to things like artificial intelligence, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> when you think about it, perhaps a little scary. We've also talked about the evolution of strat- security strategy, the development of that you know, within large-scale organizations, as well as the global impact of, of a comprehensive security strategy with it, you know, that, that has to be applied to in a multicultural manner or fashion, which I think is really interesting. I'd love to hear more about that at some point in time. In addition to that, we also talked about consequences, which I think is really important. And I think that that's an int- interesting place to kind of give a moment or two for final thoughts Davi, in your opinion, if we don't address some of these problems sooner than later, not that I want you to, to kind of go down a fatalistic path,
path. But I'd love to, for you to expound for a moment on what your thoughts are with respect to consequence if some of these things are not addressed. You talked about, obviously, the imminent physical danger associated with things like autonomous cars, for example, if they were introduced, broadly speaking, into the population without these kind of compensated controls or, or thought behind the actual platforms. What else do you think is reality with regards to consequence on a broader scale? Perhaps something that might be, I don't want to say futuristic because obviously autonomous cars are here to an extent, but certainly uh, with respect to things that are already part of the everyday enterprise experience or individual technology experience for the everyday person. What are your thoughts with regards to consequence? Are we doing enough to kind of mitigate the risks and offset the consequences in our favor. Hmm. Well, I think the number one thing that I see, the big mistake I see people making is they say, for example, pedestrians are dying. So if we bring driverless cars, we can reduce the number of deaths. And that is absolutely wrong. That is inverted to what history and analysis of risk shows. The opposite risk is if one person can kill one person in a car by driving over them, if you give them driverless cars, one person can run hundreds or thousands of people over because they control more cars from a central position. Cars are effectively missiles. And so you're giving people the ability to fire missiles in lots of directions all at the same time. The same is true in enterprise. If you bring in a large repository, and I've talked to customers about this, it's a real problem. If you bring a large repository of knowledge into a central place and give a bad person access to it, you've just made things far worse because they can now poison the data and your knowledge is off the rails, whereas before you did it manually and you had some checks or norms that were in place to protect the flow of information before it got to you. You know, the CEO that has a huge finance department, the CFO is sitting over with all of these auditors and accountants is basically protecting a, a funnel of knowledge to do the books properly. If you just jump into a new technology space and say all of the end nodes are going to be automated and just pushing all this knowledge into a central repository, and then one person is going to sit there and, and make a decision, you not only have no controls over all the feeds coming in, so it can be totally bogus information, but you're giving that one person massive amounts of control to do incredible amounts of damage. And so we have models in past that tell us not to do this. And yet I still hear, hear people say, oh, pedestrians are dying. Well, driverless will solve that. And I think, no, it'll kill more pedestrians. Don't make driverless the solution when it can actually be the problem. I mean, it, it comes back to your point about integrity, right? Is if we don't have some kind of way to check the, what's being fed into the in, into the models or into that machine learning AI that's being used for those driverless cars, we could actually have you know a, a situation like you know Mad Max or something like that, where cars become violent and and go in the exactly opposite way that we want. That's exactly right? right. We see the industrialization of our systems in the way that we saw in World War One. People did not anticipate how to deal with the industrialization of warfare. And that's why World War I was so devastating. And so we're moving, that's why I use the machine gun analogy. We're moving into a place where we're industrializing and automating systems, but we're not thinking about the devastation that can happen if you don't have controls, norms, morals, checks. You know, the information security industry is faced with massive catastrophe if it doesn't get up to speed on this. Excellent stuff. Guys, you know, I think that this has really been an excellent episode. Bobby, I really want to thank you. I think, you know, from our perspective, this has been really meaningful because we constantly, we're constantly dealing with technology problems that touch sensitive data. And we're also constantly being faced with new and emerging challenges with regards to the threat vectors that are not traditionally associated with that world, right? So we're, we're spending a lot of time looking at divergent paths you know, from a singular vantage point in an aperture. And I think you brought a lot of, you've given us a lot of, a lot to think about today. And I really want to thank you for being on. Anyone else have anything they'd like to say from a final word perspective? 
So Davi, do you have any recommendations for our listeners on recommended sources of reading or knowledge to kind of just further educate themselves in these areas that we discussed today? Well, I do have a book, <laughs> which I don't push very often, but I do have a book about cloud security because I spent the better part of 10 or 12 years fixing cloud. And I'm working on a book on big data security. I could recommend other books, but I feel like they don't address this core integrity issue properly. So, you know, Weapons of Math Destruction is a good example of a book that makes a lot of mistakes. It has a good theme, good reading, but it does make a lot of mistakes. And that's what I'm trying to work on correcting right now. Okay, great. So, I mean, my closing thought, and it's really interesting, especially on the integrity part. But one of the things that, Davi, you mentioned earlier was the aspect of of you know looking and seeing and being able to see and it reminds me of a, of, of a saying it's like this there's nothing better than a pair of eyes attached to a brain <laughs> yeah well you know i read this quote recently about business that says you want people that have integrity are fast and smart but if they don't have integrity you want them to be dumb and slow so That's a good one too <laughs> <laughs> so having the eyes and the brain are good but you have to have some integrity around them because otherwise the sensors and the data store can't be trusted. And so if you have broken sensors, eyes, ears, nose, and the data store is easily fooled or or tampered with, then yeah. it's not going to help you. Yeah. I don't know if you've read this book, but Art of Perception by Amy Herman. No. It's a really good book on, I recommend it. It's actually, it's a really good book on changing the way that you see things and how you see things because we're, there's an inbred way that we, we tend to see things because of the way we're educated, because of the way that we grow up. And we need to break that cycle because you might not be seeing what, everything that you should be seeing. Yeah, there's a funny thing about this, that social engineering is a very important part of security as an industry. So we have a lot of the tools and there are a lot of professionals who practice this regularly, but they haven't yet made the transition from social engineering to our AI ML research where you're essentially just trying to fool systems. The adversarial researchers aren't talking as much to the social engineering researchers, but they're doing the same thing. And it's hard for me too, because my background's in history, philosophy, political science, but I see that I'm getting into a world of psychology, psychiatric treatment, you know, has all kinds of weird lessons to be learned. It basically comes down to when I talked to Bruce Schneier about encryption, he would say the hard problems are solved in math. So I'm just writing about psychology now because that's the hardest space to be in, in terms of security. And he was traditionally talking about the social engineering, but psychology now applies to machines more than ever because they're supposedly thinking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, thanks so much for everyone participation today on episode 11. Davi, again, really, really thankful and grateful for you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today and talk about all these really, really pertinent topics. Oh, I appreciate it. We thank you for your time. We'd love to have you on again at some point in the future. Yeah, of course. Happy to talk about this anytime. I'm, I'm glad you asked. These are tough questions to answer, but I really appreciate the opportunity to try. You had some good answers. <laughs> yeah. Keep an eye out for episode 12 next month and stay tuned. And if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to reach out to us. We are very responsive and we would love to hear from you. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.